Our only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig. And again, it is a solo episode because I had the tremendous opportunity to talk to the showrunners of a new Disney Channel original series. It's also available on Disney Plus. That's where I checked it out. It's called Ultraviolet and Black Scorpion. And today we get to talk to the showrunners of the show. So for those of you that are not aware, the showrunners are really the ones overseeing the production and being able to coordinate not only the writing, but the acting, and just really the ones responsible for bringing it to the screen for us. I get to talk today to Leo Chu and Eric Garcia. These two have been a pair for quite a while. They've been working together uh, since Afro Samurai, if you know that property. It's a little bit different than your Disney fair, but it is a beautiful artwork, beautiful animation, and that's sort of what they're known for. And so bringing their style to a new superhero series on Disney Plus and on Disney Channel, it just works really well. I have to tell you, I was able to talk to these two last week, and at that time, I was through seven of 10 episodes on the season. They're very easily digestible. They're 22 minutes long because they are made for Disney Channel. And I decided over the weekend, I better finish this up before I recorded your intro. So that way I could give you kind of my full thoughts on the series before we dive into the interview. Real quickly, not going to bury the lead. It is a great show, especially if you are looking for something that is superhero related that you can then give to your children as well and be able to sit there and watch it with them and be able to really experience this type of communal experience of bringing together a family around a TV, around a streaming device or whatever, and be able to watch a show because it has that moral compass that you come to expect from these types of more Disney channel related programming that's aimed at a younger audience but it also has a really great acting. It has really great character development. And I like the different arcs that you get to see throughout the first season. You really get some growth, especially in the family and the family dynamics of Violet kind of interacting with her brother, Santiago, and acting, interacting with her parents. And then also we get great acting, uh, wonderful acting from a uh, actress who's playing the best friend, Maya. I learned in the interview, this is her first gig in television. And I just can't believe that because this actress just crushes it throughout the season. And you also get to see sort of that's the the more family dynamic family side of the show. But they also bring in this amazing mix with her uncle Cruz being Black Scorpion, this superhero that is then going to mentor Violet as she transforms into Ultraviolet. They do this by doing using or putting on luchador masks. And so it really is uh, also something that speaks to Mexican culture and the luchador culture. You learn so much more about that without necessarily feeling like you're in a history lesson. You just kind of learn by doing and experiencing the storylines throughout this season. And uh, the writing is great. Uh, really, I can't speak highly enough about this show. I really think that it's worth your time to go and check out, especially if you already have that Disney Plus subscription. It's right there. It actually goes along extremely well with Ms. Marvel because in a way, Violet and Kamala are similar in that they are these younger women who are trying to figure out the world, figuring out their own life, what social media plays into that. 
but then also trying to uh, live this superhero life and have that identity as well. So I would suggest that you go and check it out. Now, before we go to the interview, I just want to tell you, I had such a blast with these guys. I uh, can't begin to thank them enough for their time and for their talent. And I hope that I get the opportunity to speak to them again, because I love this interview. It was just so much fun to be able to talk to them about their creative process and to dive deep into some of the different Easter eggs they put in for us fans of superheroes as well, and how they came about creating this series for us. We also get to talk about a property that I didn't ever think I'd get to talk to one of the creators of. During the early phases of the pandemic, I watched an animated DC show called Batman Ninja, and it is still one of the most wild experiences I've ever been able to have uh, watching a show. And so it's really cool to talk to them as well because they worked uh, so heavily on that project. But I will come back at the end of the interview, tell them again how much I really appreciated their time and uh, appreciated the interview. But for now, I'm going to send you over to the interview that I did with Leo Chu and Eric Garcia, the showrunners of Ultraviolet and Black Scorpion. We are so honored today to bring to the show Eric Garcia and Leo Chu, who are the showrunners of the new show that just aired on both the Disney Channel and also available for streaming on Disney Plus, Ultraviolet and the Black Scorpion. And just excited to have both of you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. It's very nice to be here. Absolutely. Likewise. Loving it. It's nice to talk to you too. And so I really want to, I don't want to bury the lead with you too. I am uh, just about through Mm. all of the first season. I'm really enjoying this show for a number of reasons that I'm definitely going to get into, but we really like to start by asking a particular question of a lot of the guests that come on. And that is, we want to know your superhero origin story. We want to know how you got to where you are today and how you got involved in all of this, these productions that you've done, Afro Samurai, and then Batman Ninja and all these things that I know you've done leading up to Ultraviolet and the Black Scorpion. So Leo, I'll start with you. How did you get involved? Well, my superhero origin story that led me to where I am today, basically graduated from college and (laughs) I'm going way back. Um, and I want to be a writer. And my friend Eli showed up at campus basically the day of my graduation with his van. We threw all my stuff in there. We moved down to Los Angeles, you know, wound up renting an apartment on Venice Beach. Homeless people were bringing us furniture because we had like, no money. <laughs> they were actually helping us out. It was really sweet of them. And what happened was I basically, this might be a hint to your listeners, I guess, is I basically figured out that everyone's email is just their first name dot their last name at wherever they're working. <laughs> I just started emailing everybody that That's I knew. Great. Somebody, some people actually responded. Um, and one of them it was Chris Lee. At the time, he was the president of Columbia TriStar. I was shocked, but he was just like, how'd you get my email? And who are you? And whatever. And then so I was sort of explaining, oh, I, you know, I was interested in working in the entertainment industry. And he agreed to have dinner with me. Um, and I remember going to dinner and he showed up in his, you know, fancy suit and his fancy car. And he's like, kid, I only have like 30 minutes for dinner. But we ended up chatting for like three hours. Wow. Um, since then, he be- he's become a very close friend and a mentor of mine. Um, and he hooked me up with an internship at Disney. 
And my job was to get all the executives bagels in the morning, but they all wanted bagels and cream cheese and stuff from like different places, like all different bagel stores. (laughs) And so I was just like driving all over Los Angeles, getting bagels and all this sort of stuff. And I was so good at that, that they promoted me and I became an executive. So that was my, that's my weird secret in my origin story or my dirty secret is I was actually on the business side and the exec side of it and ended up working at Disney feature animation for a long time. And eventually when I hit my 10 year anniversary, I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? (laughs) I've been here for 10 years. They, you know, they take you out to like a little cocktail and they give you a little plaque. And I remember getting my photograph taken with, I guess it was Michael Eisner at the time. And I was like, this is awesome, but this is not what I moved out to do. So I partnered up with Eric, who we uh, had met on a ski trip. And I'll, I'll let Eric take over with his story and then our stories will merge. That's great. Eric, go ahead. Well, you know, it caught me off guard on the superhero origin story, but I feel like that there's a couple segments to that. Um, I was always a creative being. I like to draw and paint. And my undergraduate major in college was actually fine arts in painting, oil painting. And so, but I had like such a great group of guys on my freshman floor and they kind of really helped me see the kind of and, and perform, I guess, the creativity in writing. And that's where it really kind of started. But, you know, after graduating college with my fine arts degree, I did a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering and a lot of not great jobs. And until I got myself, I was actually over at Disney and I was working for two really tremendous guys, um, Paul Germain and Joe and Solvair. They ended up, uh, Paul was one of the creators of Rugrats. Okay. And then Joe was all, Joe was, um, the two of them worked together and uh, they created a show called Recess um, mm-hmm. on, on Disney. And that is where I had my first job as an assistant, but I also just started pitching ideas to them. You know what I mean? Because I was there and uh, I saw the, the show Lloyd in Space actually come from the ground up. And so I was like, just, you know, pitched creative things. And then uh, a couple of times they took the idea and then would, would uh, assign somebody else to write them, which is always kind of great and horrible. And then um, as a, maybe by my fourth or fifth one, they were like, okay, why don't you write this with one of the writers? And there was a great group of writers there, really uh, tremendous people. And uh, so I partnered on a couple of those. So that's where I really dipped my toe into it. But it, was, it wasn't until like meeting Leo and started working together that we kind of like, you know, you know putting the foot on the gas. We actually met on a ski trip with some friends who had organized, you know, like a cabin, I guess, and all their real friends had canceled on them. So they needed to get their money back on the cabin. <laughs> and so they called like all their third tier friends, I think, like nobody knew <laughs> each other basically on the ski trip. And then we got there, all the people who canceled ended up showing up. And of course, nobody brought sleeping bags because we all thought we had beds and everyone had to double up on beds. We shared a bed is actually how we how we met. And as we're lying there awkwardly, we're like, so what sort of movies do you like? What sort of shows do you watch? And we found we actually were very creatively in sync and then started working together. And um, very quickly, we sold some shows. Uh, we sold a movie. And our first thing that got made was Afro Samurai, mm-hmm. which is sort of tapped in on our animation experience, but it was sort of the anti-Disney of sorts, it's very violent and very, you know, very adult, I would say. And so we got to work out all that stuff that had been pent up from, you know, not being able to do that stuff, I think, on our Disney projects. Because that uh, did so well for the Viacom company, we got approached 
and through producer Brian Robbins, um, who now runs actually Paramount and Nickelodeon and stuff. Um, but at the time he was a producer and uh, he's like, you guys write really good kids. And we're like, we do. And he's like, you're really good at writing kids. He was reading our other writing samples. And he's like, um, Nickelodeon is looking for like a live action, you know, action comedy series. Let's work on one together and figure one out. And we ended up creating Super Ninjas and selling it to Nickelodeon. I hope it's okay to mention them on a Disney theme. Of course podcast. it is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask. I, I, I'm just, no, no, no. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to. One of my last questions I'm going to ask you about is Batman Ninja because that is the wildest show that I have ever watched, and so I need to ask you about that. But but no, that's wonderful to see that you're able to sort of stair step your careers creatively. And now, uh, Eric, you mentioned your fine arts degree. Is Japanese animation style something like the the anime? Is that something that really speaks to you? Because there is a lot of that in the types of projects that you have worked on together. It certainly does. I mean, you know, after, you know, toying with oil painting, which is such a rarefied, time-consuming medium. And then, you know, you look out in the world and today it is, you know, media. It's television, it's animation. And so, you know, when I, when I was able to get myself over to Walt Disney TV animation, it was just like, it felt like home because it was just like, I love the drawing, seeing it all come together. I love the drawings. I love the storyboards. I love the colors, obviously, because, you know, I was, you know, into painting. And the Japanese animation was one of those things also during my periods of suffering that was uh, alleviating that. And so, at the time, it was it was not as wide mainstream or widespread as it is today. And so you could really find like really new, fresh, creative things that were not being done, you know, in um, in American entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so like you just take those influences as like, wow, it's just like they're really doing this. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of more action and more drama. But a lot of times it's way more than that. It's that creative sensibility that the Japanese have that I think that the world is enthralled with. You know what I mean? Because there's so much uniqueness there. You know what I mean? That is not in in, in our homegrown products. And you, you look at it and it's just whatever image you're looking at, there's a beauty to it that doesn't exist in a lot of other cultural works and in other styles. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, animation by and large, there, there's so much beautiful animation out there, but something about that style, it just catches your eye in a special way. So, so thank you for, um, for that uh, answer and for that, you know, that experience that you're bringing. You also mentioned, Leo, that you are pegged as really writing children well. And I've got to say that that was one of my questions. What I love about Ultraviolet and Black Scorpion is that really this is an entry point superhero story for a lot of younger kids that might not be able to necessarily go and check out the MCU proper because we just had a very, you know, kind of scary Doctor Strange movie that came out. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering if, you know, so your approach to uh, show run this, uh, this show and how does that happen? How do you get to Ultraviolet and Black Scorpion? And was it always that this is supposed to be a superhero that can be for a younger audience as well? And I'll let either of you take that question. Well, this is a good one because the evolution of this show in its present form, you know, it took a lot of twists and turns. I don't think it's no surprise that it used to be called Ultraviolet and Blue Demon. And uh, Blue Demon is a, you know, famous Mexican, you know, luchador, actual luchador wrestler. 
And, you know, for a lot of reasons, he had to bow out. And so creatively, we had to retool it and change, you know, what the dynamic was between Violet and, and now Black Scorpion. And, you know, we basically, you know, when that happened, it was a little sudden that we lost Black uh, Blue Demon. So we had to kind of come up with like, just what is that relationship? And what was like really fun to us? And I don't think it's betraying anything. Um, at least I hope not. You know, we are very inspired by Game of Thrones. Mm. And I was looking for that relationship. Who is like a big guy, a big, strong guy, you know what I mean? Who would have powers, you know what I mean? And a younger girl. And um, we kind of zeroed in on Arya and the Hound. And we really liked how she was just such this tough, plucky girl, you know what I mean? Who give him lots, everything that he could give back. You know what I mean? And he was like irritated, but he was also found moments of tenderness, you know what I mean, in that. So that was one of our kind of like creative touchstones early on in order to bring this new pairing to life. Yeah. And on the superhero front, you know, it's interesting. I, I love hearing you describe the show as like an entry point show for, you know, younger audiences into superheroes. Cause I don't know that we ever quite thought of it like that, but I guess that's what it is. I, I love that. We didn't. I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. Cause we love superhero stuff, you know, and for us, you know, we've done a lot of genre shows. Um, it, it's sort of become like the hallmark of sort of what we do. Um, but it's never really the destination necessarily mm-hmm. for us. Like it's really more like an entry point into exploring character and relationships and humor and pain and growing up, you know, and it sort of becomes the context for that. And I think, you know, at least my goal was, um, you know, kind of creating a show that the entire family could watch together. Uh, you know, when some of my best memories of my family is really watching movies together, you know, like my dad loved movies. My mom loves movies. Last time I was watching stuff with my mom, you know, we were actually watching this show. There's something that just struck us. I think kind of early on in our careers where like television is very demo driven and very bifurcated. It's like this show is for a kid six to 11. This one's for like 12 to 14. This is for teenagers. This is for whatever young adult, whatever. And you're like, why is it so segmented? Because when you make a movie, it's for everyone. Right. And so we've always endeavored to make something, at least with this show, that's really for everyone. So the entire family can watch it together. So on that level, I guess it is an entry point for younger viewers, but hopefully it's also very entertaining for their parents and also older siblings or teenagers can also watch it. And it operates on like a lot of different levels. Absolutely. Well, and I am someone that has grown up on comic books and such a comic book nerd and geek. And I'll tell you what, this was this was a heck of a week on Disney Plus for me, guys. I mean, we had another <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi episode. Yeah. We had a Ms. Marvel drop. And then we had your series that I got to watch. And so it's like, I'm living the life over here uh, on the streaming <laughs> oh. platform. But, you know, it's it's great because I have a six-year-old son. And mm. to be able to have a property that I can very confidently show him these characters, that then he can also start to learn from. Because I want to get into the the culture of this show as well, because that's such a huge part of what you've done uh, in bringing this show. But just the relationships. You know, you mentioned that relationship between Violet and Cruz. And I'm never not going to see the parallel now between Arya and the Hound. But (laughs) even from the very beginning, you see that like longing to for Violet to have a better relationship with her uncle. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's established in that pilot that she really wants to have that. And then you get the push and pull. I 
not to spoil, this is a, a light spoiler, but there's some great millennial versus like Gen Z <laughs> going back and forth, some witty writing in there too. And as a millennial, I totally appreciate the cool beans references and everything else that you threw in there. Um, <laughs> but you're also dealing with issues like social media and things that are so prescient to a younger generation that even I didn't have to, you know, Facebook started when I was in college and when you, you could only get on Facebook, if you were in college, it was kind of mm -hmm. the exclusive thing out of Harvard or whatever. And then now kids really have to deal with this in such a way. So it's almost a good thing for parents and for kids to watch together, because then maybe the parents can better understand that situation as well. So Social mm -hmm. media being an aspect of this, is that a message you're trying to get across that it is something that's so important in the lives of teenagers right now? We want this show to be relevant to our times, mm -hmm. right? And this is the world that we're living in. But at the same time, in creating like any uh, kind of like, you know, story, there's kind of a moral universe to it. Mm -hmm. And so you, we want to have it, we want to make sure that the stories are morally constructed. And I don't say that in this kind of like really preachy way, but it's like when you were in the trenches, you know, writing these scripts, it's like, you, what is this story about? What, what, what are people, what do people value? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That you are, that you are exploring and then you, you, you test and, and see what the challenges to those values are, because, you know, ultimately that's how people behave and react to things. And so people are always reacting to social media and have social media desires and so it's just about like, how can we tell a story that is relevant to all of those things and then get us to just like a little, a little bit further, you get a little something out of the story. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And obviously we see the points of view of adults, you know what I mean? Like Cruz, you know what I mean? He's just like, he doesn't think this is a good thing, you know, to be spending your time on, but. Uh, the mom doesn't like social media, but the dad right. is on it. You know, he's trying to follow the footsteps of his son who's like getting popular with YouTube videos. It's just sort of the whole gamut of it. But I think the most crucial part Eric, to, to what you're saying is that it's really ultimately about Violet and her journey and her coming of age and what she learns about it, you know, and I feel like there is sort of a commentary like social media is great and but it has its place and she can't find fulfillment through likes, you know, or building fandom, you know, and trying to kind of cater her superheroism towards that is ultimately flawed and it's ultimately empty. You know, and she ends up finding more meaning in actually what it really means to be a superhero, which is helping people. And so there's like this little journey that kind of she goes on kind of in the first couple episodes and she finds a place like social media continues in the series, but it has its place in her world. And so she's able to grow from it. There's also these two storylines of the superhero. She feels like she needs to be a superhero because she's not good at anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And she needs to be on social media and getting this engagement because she's not good at anything. And she's looking up at her brother, Santiago, who seems to be so uh, perfect at everything. But now, again, don't spoil it for me, but it seems like <laughs> through this season, we're starting to see some of that development, too. And so she's starting mm -hmm. to realize that she is she is good enough as herself and that everyone has these flaws and uh, everyone has great things about them, even if they have some greatness thrust upon them through becoming this superhero. So again, the messages of this show mm. are just really universal. And I, I really have been enjoying it so much. I do want to get into the Mexican culture as well. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much more about luchadors and about uh, a lot of the, these cultural 
iconography that I, I never knew about before. You know, and being someone that I, I would watch wrestling every now and then, you would see people like Rey Mysterio be in whatever. I don't even remember if he was in WCW or WWF, but that was really my only entry point into Luchadors. Mm. And so talk about the cultural presence or, or the series as well. And I'll start with Leo on that. You know, it's interesting. When I was growing up, my brother and I were huge into wrestling. Like we were just like, it was all about wrestling. And then we sort of had our um, eyes opened by our uncle Jesse. Um, he's like a family friend, uncle, <laughs> who's Mexican-American. Um, and sort of, he's like, well, if you boys like this, you got to check out these luchadors, you know? And we're just like, oh my gosh, because the moves are so acrobatic and they're insane, you know? And you're just, but there's a whole different cultural tradition around luchadors. Like they wrestle wearing masks. They're kind of like superheroes within Mexican culture, you know, and that's one of the things that Eric and I have talked about, which is sort of the parallels and the language between, you know, Lucha Libre wrestling and then also superheroes and where they kind of dovetail and where they sort of inform each other. You know, like Eric can actually talk about this probably a little more in depth than I can. But, um, you know, like in a sort of ancient Mesoamerican culture, uh, a lot of powers are sort of drawn from masks you know, and like there's sort of a mass culture and there's a, like a magic that you believe that there's from uh, that's from that. And so we kind of infuse that idea into these Lucha Libre masks. And so these superheroes kind of draw power from wearing their Lucha Libre masks. And you have to keep your identity secret, which is a superhero thing. But it's a huge Lucha Libre thing. Like luchadors do not reveal their identities. Like um, El Santo, who's one of the most famous luchadors, like nobody knew who he was until the very, very end of his career. And when he died and he was buried, he was buried with his mask on. Wow. You know, like, it's like a huge thing. So when Violet's Uncle Cruz tells her that you cannot reveal your identity and she wants everybody to know it's her because she's overshadowed by her brother, there's a superhero thing. There's a teenage thing at play. But there's also sort of a, a luchador thing that's going on. And so your power is in who you are wearing that mask and that identity. And when you unmask yourself, you lose that power. Yeah. I mean, it's like, for me, you know, the, the luchador aspect of it is also one of the attractive things about, you know, that attracted me to the show, to work on the show, you know, the luchadors kind of have this interesting mysticism to them. Or, I mean, it feels like that from the outside because it's just like, it's a little alien, but it's also spectacular and it's showy and stuff like that. And it goes to me a little bit beyond wrestling. And, um, you know, like as a part of um, Mexican culture that I've kind of studied and enjoyed like throughout my life, it's like I, I went to my first Maya site when I was like 15 years old and was fascinated by Mesoamerican culture and ended up studying it more. And, you know, in all of those cultures, the mask was a very, you know, it's a prominent part of their, of their rituals and their ceremonies, you know what I mean, and their religion. And like, and this goes into kind of like our uh, need to explore world mythologies, kind of like for our creative juice, you know what I mean? To kind of like, mm -hmm. and so it's very inspiring to see all of those things. And so this was a really great opportunity to take, you know, a, one of the great cultural areas of the world, Mesoamerica, and, you know, fuse it with something very contemporary, which is our, you know, superhero language, you know what I mean? That's throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, you know, has kind of like taken America by storm and, you know, and with that, the world. And so it's just like by combining those two, we really get to have a very Mexican-American, unique superhero, you know what I mean, with the luchador. And, uh, 
And I just, uh, I think that there's just a lot of places we can go with it. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things that always attracts us to a project is, is just like, what is that creative potential? Yeah. And we also love just tapping into cultures and just our influences, I guess. You mentioned anime earlier. Um, <laughs> there's a word that we made up on the show, which is luchame, uh, because the show <laughs> yeah. is kind of like luchador influence, but it also has like anime influences. That's the fun we're having. Yes. Exactly. And like the way she transforms is like sort of like a magical anime girl transformation, you know, like that sort of thing that's happening. And you blend it all together and then you're on the language of like, you know, Lucha Libre, like uh, Technicos are like technically the good guys, right? Or the ones who play by the rules and Rudos are sort of the quote unquote bad guys or the ones who break the rules. But not all Rudos are bad and all, you know, they are just the ones who are not following the rules, but they are sort of the analog to like good guys and bad guys and superheroes and also in uh, American wrestling. You know, it's just so great to get some of those uh, cultural references that you get out of this show and to be able to learn a bit more uh, about the culture as you're going through this. And it's so funny that you mentioned the animation styles, because especially when Cruz is doing some of his moves as Black Scorpion, you can see some of the animation that goes along with it. And I mm -hmm. thought about anime I also, and maybe you haven't gotten this yet, but I've weirdly thought about Batman 66 and Adam West and like how they would splash the storyboards up there. And like, it's just incredible, like that mixture of comics. And again, why it's a great entry point for kids, because then they can see sort of a comic come to life a bit in your show and then take that with them and hopefully get to that brick and mortar comic book store and start reading those books. Oh my God. I love that you <laughs> referenced Batman 66. I just love it because that's like, it's it's in the, it's in there. I think I'm a huge Batman sixty six fan. One of Leo's touchstones. That's good, one of my good. favorite touchstones and biggest influences. So I just That's I awesome. love that. I love that you picked up on that. That's awesome. Well, uh, I will tell you that your cast has also been doing a lot of interviews as well. And so I wanted to go back and listen to some of those interviews, read some of those interviews as research. And Mariana Borelli, uh, our mom, Nina had said in an interview that actually she credited the showrunners, you two, with giving her a lot of space to help create the character. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the collaborative process you've gone through on this show with your actors. And Eric, I can start with you this time uh, to tr help create those characters that now we see on screen. But I guess the thing with all of this, you know, since it takes so many wonderful people to work on this show, it's, you know, we all need structure. You know what I mean? The writers need structure. What is the form that we're creating? And it's how do we, how can we be the most creative we can be within the structure? And so like for the actors, I think it's very much the same thing. You know, we give them these parameters. It's like, you are the principal of the school, but you're also very, so you're tough. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? You're no mm -hmm. nonsense, but you're also a very caring mother, but you're also a very fun mother. You know what I mean? And an attractive mom. So it's like, you know, all of those things, you know, like, and, and I love when she, um, and actors, I think it's great when they find that chemistry with the other actors, you want to push the boundaries as much as you can to really bring it to life, to feel it as strongly as you can. And, um, and so for all of the actors, uh, you know, we've actually watched them do that. And I think that's really funny. I mean, it's like, I didn't know that J.R or had that, that super funny giggle when we cast him. Or I didn't know that it's like when he, he was great as the serious, you know, Black Scorpion. But at the same time, he could be just as childish, you know what I mean, as, <laughs> yeah. as, you know, as anybody. 
And I think that that's so great. And then it's just like, oh, we can write to that. And so it's like, so all the, and you know, like Juan Alfonso as well. I mean, it's just like, he has such like a great comedic timing. He's just like, he's a fun dad. He just like, he's like warm and cuddly, but then it's just also, he can be very silly. So it's, it's really amazing to watch all the actors spread their wings and, uh, and, and just, and, and reach for it, you know, go for it to make the character as real and inhabited. And it's just like, well, this is what I would do. And then you see that and you're like, great, great. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's something that we do. I don't know if everyone does this, but something that we always try to do on our shows is we meet with all the actors before we start writing. If we have a possible, if it's possible, um, sometimes you end up writing it first and then you cast and then you kind of meet with your actors again. Cause I think it's really important. Let's they're act. Yes. They're actors. They can perform and they can play any character, but everyone has like an essence, I believe. Yes. And when you start and when you chat with them for a while and get to know them as people, you can kind of pick up on their essence, you know, and then you can sort of tailor things a little bit. You can be like, Oh, there's a cadence, how they speak. It actually sounds a little bit better like that. Oh, these jokes would land a little bit better if you write it like this. Oh, you know, like Mariana is so lovely and wonderful and spiritual. Like she's a very creative being. Um, And so, you know, in talking to her, I don't want to spoil anything, but we discovered some stuff about her past um, and just who she is. And we're like, oh, that'd be so interesting for Nina because Nina is not like that on the show. She's very, she's a little tightly wound, maybe a little type A, very organized. (laughs) She's a school principal, right? Like she's very together, you know? And we're like, okay, so you have that. And then after talking to Juan Alfonso, we're like, oh, there is such a nurturing, compassionate side to him. And so if you put that in the Juan Carlos character, suddenly you have this interesting pairing in this marriage and you can kind of see how the marriage works between these two characters, you know? And the other thing is interesting is getting to know the kids. Cause for a lot of the, um, the younger actors, uh, this is their first show. Like Zelia, who plays the best friend, this is her first thing that she's done on television. Likewise with um, Brian Blanco, you, you kind of get to know them and just sort of what their rhythms are. And then you're like, oh, I feel like they could do this. And then you kind of start, I don't know, this is something that we like to do is you write little things to kind of challenge them a little bit and help them grow as actors. And you're like, oh, I wonder if they can do that. I think they could do this. You know, and then you kind of do the scene or do this little arc for them and it challenges them. And I think it keeps it interesting. I just came off an episode where Maya is a focal point in the episode. And it's, um, it's in, amazing to me that that's one of her first experiences because she handles that episode so well and really carries that episode on her shoulders. So that's just all so wonderful. And I did also want to mention you have a bona fide Disney Channel star here in Scarlet. And so can you talk about bringing her into the cast and how that has been? So we are so lucky to have Scarlett on the show. She is amazing. She, first of all, she's so sweet. She's so nice. And I feel like she's like an acting savant or something. Like she's just so, it's, it's so, it seems so effortless. And, uh, and we're just like marveling at her and her performance and her skill set and her craft. Um, it seems very intuitive uh, for her. Um, and you know, the other, the adults on the show are also like, oh my gosh, Scarlet, they're just like, they're like learning stuff from Scarlet, you know, like she's really very, very talented. Um, I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's something, well, not to get too like in the, uh, the nitty gritty of it all, but like, you know, when we had to retool the show and when Blue Demon was no longer part of it, because, uh, I don't think it's a secret. There was a shot pilot with Blue Demon and Scarlet. 
And you know, you can see Scarlett in this in this pilot and just and know she was a star. And it's just like, oh my God, like we have a show. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's like because we have because we have her and because we have these all these wonderful actors. And so it was a real challenge to find what is that new character, J.R. Villarreal and like Scorpion Cruz, you know, to bring into that mix. And how does that work? Because frankly, I think everybody is in awe of, of Scarlet. Everybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just like she comes so prepared. She knows all her lines. There's never a moment where she really doesn't know it. She intuitively grasps, you know what I mean, what is the attitude, both in the fun and in the serious and in the emotional of all of these things that we write. It's very interesting because you're like you try to give her like you want to give, you know, like every actor, and as this thing is being shot, you give notes and you're like a little bit more of this. And and Scarlet, we feel like we have to do that almost almost not at all. And it's so <laughs> yeah. fascinating. It's so fascinating to watch her. And you know, I couldn't imagine a sweeter, more hardworking, more talented um young actress. You know what I mean? And she is so incredibly well spoken and gracious. She is really gracious. And and thank goodness that she's so good because this might be a little too in the weeds and stuff, but you know, like every state production she, is hard. Production is hard, and there's like limited um kid hours that you can shoot because mm-hmm. they're, uh, you know you basically have a, a kid who's working and so every state has different hours and you know where we shot this was in louisiana uh, which doubles for los angeles um actually i think pretty well which i was shocked at um we have an amazing location person an amazing production designer but you know there's very limited hours and once you know and in those hours you have to include school you have to include hair and makeup and all that stuff so thank goodness that scarlet is as good as she is because we literally would not be able to do this without her because she's so on top of it. You know, you don't have to do like a million takes of her trying to get something right. It's like you got you get it and then you move on. You know, you just keep on, you know, plowing through your day that way. She nails the public violet and the private violet. Like the the <laughs> public persona she's trying to give and then also in her private life and she shows a little bit of that to Maya and to Santiago and not mm-hmm. so much even to her parents, honestly, because she thinks that to her parents, that she's the one that is just the also ran next to her brother. And mm-hmm. it's just how she interacts with everyone is just really uh, to a great level. I mean, it, it really helps move the show along. You instantly have this bond with these characters, you know, the chemistry between her and Cruz, and it's just, it works so well. Oh, and the you. relatability of Scarlett, you know what I mean, is amazing too, just for, you know what I mean, like setting up this character as somebody who is not good at something. And she's also like an every person and every girl, you know what I mean? It's just like, I'm not amazing at all these things, but Scarlett is amazing at all those things. Yeah, well, it's very <laughs> interesting because when we were auditioning, you know, Black Scorpions, you know, you know, we had to do like basic chemistry reads because you really... Mm-hmm had to put them together but what was very difficult is normally those are done inside a room but we were doing it in pandemic so scarlet mm. is doing chemistry reads on zoom with actor with different actors and we're trying to find that vibe but you know when she started reading with jr you're just like oh oh i see there's a show i was like there's a show there's the show like i could feel it together and i think every, everyone could kind of you could kind of feel it there's something there's something happening there as an audience member, I can tell you that you nailed it for sure. Um, uh-huh. Before, so kind of leaving the show for a minute, before we start to wrap up, 
I have to, I mentioned it earlier, I've got to ask a question about Batman Ninja because I know that you executive produced this and you were very heavily involved. My friend, this was at the beginning of the pandemic and I just recently gotten HBO Max. And so of course, all of the libraries out there of the animated films and he goes, put on Batman Ninja and then text me when it happens. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a moment that you're going to text me and say, what is that that I just watched? And uh, oh I won't God. spoil it for our audience. They'll know when that moment is. I could maybe tell you after the interview uh, what sure. that moment was. But talk about that uh, project. Just And really, I don't even necessarily have a question, only to see when I saw that in your credits. It was like, I have to bring up this piece to them because it is such beautiful mixture of that Japanese art that we talked about earlier. And then also some of those cultural references as well, bringing in our characters that we've loved in a completely different context. And so uh, Eric, I can start with you if you'd want, but just any comments that you have on that production. You know, with that production, I feel very fortunate to have worked on Batman Ninja because it's like, it was such a unique opportunity and when it was brought to us, it was in such like a raw form. It's like we, th there, there was uh, the directors and the um, character designers were at work on it. We needed an English language story. You know what mm. I mean? Not just kind of translating it because, but we really needed an English language story that made sense. And, um, but as we saw, and so when that started to come through and we started to kind of see some of these storyboards and we're like, oh, like, it seems like, you know, because it's like, it starts with drawings. It starts with drawings and character design. And then, um, and then there was a lot of free reign in the Japanese process for creating something, which is amazing because they can do all these like beautiful, beautiful things, you know what I mean? That don't necessarily go together, you know what I mean? And so we had to kind of, you know, create a narrative that was, that felt strong to us. That's so great. Yeah, it's like a it's a real true co-production, um, but it originated in Warner Brothers Japan. Um, okay. I, as you know, I'm a huge Batman fan. Obviously, with my Batman '66 geeking out earlier, but uh, but like I love Batman. And when we got approached to work on this, uh, mostly because of Afro Samurai, I think we were we've been told that we were the first Americans to actually do a co-production with Japan because they have their very own unique process. And that was at the Afro Samurai project. So they're like, I think you guys can do this because the, the Warner brothers on the U S side was having, I would say difficulties or challenges sort of liaising with them and kind of figuring out what's going on. And so, you know, when we started working with them, um, you know, a couple of things became very clear to us. One is that Batman is not popular in Japan. He is sort of the antithesis of what a Japanese hero might be. Um, in Japanese culture, people are very group oriented. Um, they do things together as a team. He's like a lone wolf. He does things by himself. He doesn't really have friends. And so we're like, whoa, that's going to be very difficult because the goal was to actually make something that would work in both cultures. Right. Um, the other thing, like Eric alluded to with the Japanese um, process is that it's very art and storyboard driven. So you just start getting character designs and art. And so when we started working on it, you know, we wrote and produced it. Um, you know, we would literally be getting cool designs. We're like, this is awesome. Where does this go? You know, or like you start getting like, you know, and you start getting like storyboards and you're like, oh, there are a lot of, there are a lot of monkeys. <laughs> like, there were, right. And you're like, there's a lot, there were more. Just uh, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> but we're, which were uh, cut from this a movie, but we're just like, God, there's a lot of monkeys going on. And then I think that I know the moment where you're like, what is going on? What did I just watch? Because that moment happened to us too. And we could talk about it afterwards and see if it's the same moment. Cause we're just like, 
what? Okay, we're doing that. Okay. And so then you start trying <laughs> right. to figure out the story, right? And so, you know, this I don't think is a spoiler, but it's basically about Batman who ends up through a time machine um, that's uh, created by a gorilla rod. Uh, he ends up transporting back into uh, sort of medieval Japan. So the, the last thing, this has been such a great conversation. The last thing that I like to ask people um, when I get a chance to interview creative people and the people that are putting their art and creativity out into the world for us to enjoy is that you do get an opportunity to talk in other interviews and you do get to have these experiences where you get to be interviewed. But is there ever a story or a message that you would like to talk about that you're never asked about? And so I kind of like to give an open floor to say yes. if there's anything you want to talk about. Go ahead, Eric. So I think uh, what I want to talk about is what I'm calling the creative ethic or a creative ethic, because, you know, I think in our business, there's a lot of times people can become cynical, not just as an, not only as an audience member, but as a creator, as somebody, and you end up uh, phoning it in for lack of a better word. You know what I mean? Whether you're a writer or anybody else. And, it, you know, the, the disservice is really to yourself. You know what I mean? As to anybody who actually does that. But I, I, I guess I've just been doing a little bit of thinking about that because, you know, when you manage people, you always want to find a way to get the best out of them. You know what I mean? It's just like not just the best performance, the best writing, the best production, the best directing. And it's like, how do you do that? And it, we all kind of have to have some shared values about what we're going for. And, you know, mm -hmm. Leo and I have been very fortunate in our career that we've worked with some really, you know, amazing people. And some people are like, you know, they talk about personalities and, and people being difficult and stuff like that. And, you know, and which is happens and um, a lot of times unnecessarily so. And I think that all also is a part of your creative ethic. You know, what I mean, when we're no one can do this alone. So, you know, as a group of people, you know, we have to kind of join together and put all of our best efforts forward and. And, you know, in production, my God, I have no idea how they have the physical stamina to do all of it. I'm exhausted, you know what I mean, all the time. And so it's just about that creative ethic and refining things to make things, you know, the best that you can and make things that are truly worthwhile. And, you know what I mean? Because what you end up doing and putting out in the world, it's ultimately you you're putting out in the world. So you might as well do your best at that. So that's something that I like to talk about. God, I, this is such a good question. Um, and Eric had such a good answer. And I was going to go with a joke. Um, <laughs> like, but I, I think I feel like I have to say something sub substantive. Um, uh, so uh, my joke was I was going to pontificate about how much I love, I hate going to bed, but I love napping. But that's not very deep. But, you know, I feel like there's this thing that kind of happens when you're working in television or working in entertainment as a writer and you basically you know you go to a lot of different jobs you know everyone you know it's so hard you get a chance to work on something and I think something that people forget is that whenever you work on something you end up like whatever project you take on ends up being kind of part of your creative DNA like as a person right and so when you take that project on, it influences you in the same way that you influence it and you create and you work on things like it kind of speaks back to you. 
and it kind of shapes you in a way. And I feel like that's why some people who, you know, end up working in TV, they start losing the passion for it because they're just going from job to job. or they're not really passionate about, they're maybe chasing the money or whatever it is. And I think it's very important, especially if you're a, a young writer, even an experienced writer or anybody who's creating that you're passionate about what you're doing and to care very much about it because it's going to shape who you are because it it'll shape the product. It'll shape the product, but it also leave its imprint on you. And I feel like that's a really important thing to remember because I think that's how people become hacks, right? Like you always hear, Oh, this person's a hack or whatever. And it's like, how did somebody become a hack? Cause nobody sets out to do that. But if you're a person who loves writing, you know, like fairy tales, but you're writing, you know, um, you know, cop procedural murder mysteries all the time, that starts shaping who you are and you're not going to care that much about it. And then so- suddenly your, your creative spirit and your creative person changes, mm-hmm. you know, and then you don't know who you are anymore. And I think that's when the product starts becoming bad. There's a, there's a famous story about Betty Davis and how she had such high standards as an actress and how she picked her projects. And she always had such a high standard. But then later on in her career, that start, her projects started falling apart and her performances weren't as good because I think she lost track of her high standards and she was just sort of chasing either the opportunity to work or the money to pay for the house or whatever it is. And it ended up really affecting her much later you know, in her life and her acting career. And you talk about that essence that everybody has. You mentioned that earlier and yeah. uh, just, just wonderful. Well, I have to tell you, first of all, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the art and creativity you put in the world because it really does mean a lot to a lot of people. And uh, just thank you. This has been wonderful. Yeah, oh, thank you. I, I loved it too. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, thank, thank you. Such guess. good questions and it's so much fun. It's like talking to a friend. It's so oh, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, have <laughs> a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. You as well. Wow. Again, just awesome to get to talk to them. I really could have talked to them for a long time. We were slated to talk for a half an hour and they were both very kind to allow me to ask some additional questions beyond that. But I really love that Leo says at the end there, it's like a conversation amongst friends because really that's sort of immediately the vibe that I got off of it as well. And I'm glad that that went over to their side and that they felt very comfortable answering those questions, but then also just talking about their art, because I think that what we don't do enough of is spotlight the creative side of a lot of these different projects. And so that's why I really love, don't get me wrong. I love talking to actors. I love talking to people that are in front of the camera, but when you see those, the people that are working hard behind the camera to develop a series, to bring it to us, that is such a vital role that I love learning more about as I'm going throughout this process and have, as I have these opportunities. So again, thank you to Gail in particular for helping me set up this interview with Leo and Eric. It's just been great to get to see their series. Uh, you can see it in full on Disney Plus right now. So as soon as this is over, go and turn it on, especially if you have young kids in your family. This, again, is such a good entry-level family superhero series that you can get involved in and teach you a little bit about culture, the Mexican culture in particular as well. And I think that that's also just a plus that this show has going for it has a killer lead. Scarlett's amazing. She's great. Um, Love to talk to her someday as well. uh, And hopefully maybe get the opportunity to do that, but it's, it's just great. I can't recommend enough. Go and check out ultraviolet and black scorpion. If for some reason, this is your first 
episode of Beyond the Mouse, or if you're listening to this on the Front Row Network feed, be sure to go and check us out on Beyond the Mouse. You can see all the past interviews that we've had a chance to do. I'm only one third of Beyond the Mouse. I have two other co-hosts, Brett and Vanessa, and we have a lot of fun just talking all things Disney. So go and check us out wherever you find podcasts. You also can find us on social media. Go to Beyond the Mouse Pod on Instagram. We're also available on Twitter, Beyond Mouse. As well, you can check us out on Facebook, and that would be Beyond the Mouse Podcast for the page. But then I actually also really recommend joining us Beyond the Mouse Podcast Pals, which is our group, because then we get to talk a bit more about uh, what's going on in the parks and also in the movies and everything else that's happening, all things Disney. But just a great day when I get to talk to creative people and I've had those opportunities a lot recently and very fortunate for those opportunities. And again, thank you to Leo, to Eric for not only your time, but also for your talent and what you're putting out there into the world. So for Beyond the Mouse and the Front Row Network, I am Craig and we will see you real soon in the front row. <laughs>